have a Bible, you can open up to Judges chapter 10, and we will be looking at Judges 10. So uh, last week, uh, Joe uh, preached through Judges chapter 9, uh, and basically what we saw, uh, just as a recap, we saw this guy Abimelech, who was just a wicked, wicked man, and uh, as he... As the chapter ends, we saw he, he's a terrible guy. He kills his family. And then at the very end, some lady kind of like Nolan Ryan's him with a big rock into his head and crushes his skull. And somehow he can talk while he has his skull crushed. I don't know how that works. Uh, but I don't know how my phone works either. So it does work somehow. That he can talk with his skull crushed. And he eventually gets killed. And then uh, we see at the very end of the chapter, what we've seen is this guy named Abimelech who's self-promoted himself to lead to lead Israel uh, and the, and God did not appoint him led Israel into a, a terrible position just a terrible place and now we're coming into chapter 10 uh, and at the very beginning of chapter 10 verses 1 through 5 uh, we're going to see two minor judges be raised up we'll see that and then after that in verse 6 we'll start that same kind of cycle again we've talked about the cycle many times in judges where they have Israel will sin, Yahweh will discipline them, and after that, they'll cry out for mercy, and then after that, uh, God sends some form of deliverer or rescuer, and then whenever that happens, Israel is brought to rest, and then eventually that deliverer, judge, rescuer, whatever you call them, will die. You know, that, that, that big circle that, that we're going through all the time. Well, in chapter 10, what we're going to see here uh, in that big circle, uh, in that big cycle, is the, the answer is going to be Jephthah. That's the next guy that's going to be raised up. And so, uh, and that, that little six-point cycle, today, we're only going to get through one, two, and a little bit of three. Like, we're questioning uh, who's, who's going to be the rescuer. That's point four in that, in, that, in that cycle. You know, there's like six points to the cycle. So today, we're going to see two minor prophets get raised up. Uh, I'm sorry, minor judges get raised up. Minor meaning, you just don't know much about them. Not that they're insignificant people. They're awesome. Um, but in, in, in verses one through five, we'll have them. And then we'll start the cycle. And we'll get through kind of the first three points of the big cycle, and then we'll stop. And then next week we'll pick up the rest of the cycle, seeing Jephthah being raised up. So uh, that's what what we're looking at today. But as we're looking in verses six through eighteen at that kind of the first three points of the cycle, we're going to zero in on some truths uh, regarding uh, worship, what real repentance looks like. So uh, as we do that, hopefully we'll have some some good applications for us today. Uh, since this chapter is short, we're going to read the whole chapter. So if you are able to stand, uh, I'd love for you to stand. We, we stand as we read God's word in honor of it. So we're starting at chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 1. And then we'll, I'll say, after I read, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. Of course, saying that you're thankful the Lord would be so kind as to give us his word. But also, conversely, you're saying, Lord, the things I hear, the things you teach me through the Holy Spirit, I... I want to say yes to. I want to, I want to say yes and be obedient to those things. Starting at chapter 10, verse 1. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and then he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair the Gilead, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they uh, had 30 cities called Havoth Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died, and it was buried at Kaman. Verse 6. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals and the Asheroth, and the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So 
The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and to the hand of the Ammonites, and crushed, and they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried, cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you. We have forsaken our God and served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines, the, the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites uh, oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, <clears throat> I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us to this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And they became impatient over the misery of Israel. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped at Gilead. And the people of Israel came together and encamped at Mizpah. And the people, <clears throat> the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man? who will begin to fight against the Ammonites. He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You have a seat. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we uh, look at this text this morning, again, we're uh, confronted with idolatry. We're confronted with how wicked it is. And that you've wired us as worshipers. You've wired us in your sovereign will to want to worship and many times we misplace our worship <clears throat> on false gods instead of you. And so I pray that as we look at this text and we think through uh, what true worship should look like, that for all of us, Lord, including myself, where we, where we don't worship you rightly, that you'll confront us with that. And that as we are confronted, Lord, that we would want <clears throat> to change, that we would want to have our hearts be uh, moved towards deep, passionate worship for Jesus. And the places that we are unaware that that's not happening, that you would make those places aware. We pray, Lord, that you would be so kind to us as to help us see these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've read the text, um, basically, there's a transition that's going to happen uh, as we go through it. And as we're beginning, we have the people of Israel that say, uh, we want our gods. And as we want our gods, we want our sin. That's what we want right now. And they will eventually kind of transition over to, okay, um, we still want our gods, but we don't want to do our sin anymore. And eventually they'll move over, okay, we don't want our sin, and we want you as our God. They're, they're going to transition over to there, and then they're going to, as we get to the end, say, now who's going to come save us? We need, we need a deliverer. And so um, as we're going through this particular text, um, really the, the crux of, of our points will be from 6 through 18. But I do want to open up by talking a little bit about these first two minor judges that are raised up. But before we do that, the main idea of today, of what we're looking at, will be about idolatry. And when I, when I talk about idolatry, because most of us don't think about uh, ourselves as idolaters, we think that's what they did back then when they built little statues, and I don't do that kind of stuff. Um, I want to just call it misplaced worship instead. So instead of idolatry, we're going to use misplaced worship. And so uh, you can say, well, that's something that unbelievers do. And I'll say, sure but also believers. And so all of us have many times where we will uh, misplace our worship instead of on Jesus other times where uh, we're worshipers of Jesus. God has wired us to be worshipers of Jesus. 
Uh, but what we'll do instead of worship Jesus is we'll misplace it onto sinful patterns instead of Christ. Much like what we see Paul kind of explaining in Romans 7. The good things I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things I don't want to do, I end up doing those. This is misplaced worship. We're all designed and all wired to be worshipers. But sometimes as believers... Um, if we're not following after Christ with our whole heart, we'll misplace our worship and we'll put it on, on other things. And so as we're looking at this, obviously there's differences between Old Testament Israel and the church today in the New Testament. There's, there's key, key differences. Um, but even as there's differences, there's certain uh, principles I want to draw out, gospel-centered principles I want to draw out for us <coughs> that will help us uh, understand the text for us today. Now, before we do that... Uh, I want to make sure we see verses 1 through 5 and get a good understanding of what's going on. Remember, um, we've just finished uh, in chapter 9 where Israel uh, let Abimelech come into power and in some manner followed after him. He was a wicked man, killed 70 of his brothers, and eventually he's killed. But he, he certainly brought uh, a lot of problems to Israel. And we can see in verse 10, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola. Now, the son of Pua, Tola, uh, also means worm, and then his son's name is the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. If any of you are pregnant, and there's always somebody pregnant, there's three solid names right there. You can go with Tola, which means worms, Pua, which sounds disgusting, and Dodo, which obviously doesn't mean a very smart person. So, uh, I'm just kidding, obviously. But uh, we have this man, he actually is not a bad guy. His name's Tola, and look what he does. Uh, it says that he lived in Shamir, the hill country, and he judged Israel 23 years. Uh, but he also saved Israel. And when we see that he saved Israel, whom did he save Israel from? The, who were the people that were oppressing him? There's, there's not necessarily written anything to us. These certain people came in. I think, obviously, who told us, uh, saved Israel is he saved Israel from Israel. Israel had, had ventured so far away from the Lord that this man came in. And when he did... He judged 23 years, and he was died and buried. And then after that, they were so prosperous, you can notice there's a little bit of difference. Tola was right. He, was, he saved Israel and judged. The next guy, Jair, um, when he comes in, who judged Israel 22 years. There's no save there. It just says that he judged, which means um, Tola had brought prosperity. And whenever that happened, uh, after he died, Jair came in for 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys and had 30 cities. You can say, what does all that mean? It just means he was wealthy. He, he was wealthy. Um, and it, they had these, these 30, city, 30 cities to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamar. So what we see here, these 30-30, these it doesn't mean that like, he's got his own ESPN show. Again, it just means he's, he's lucky. I mean, not lucky. He's wealthy. Uh, but what we can see here is all together, these two judges, Judge Israel for 45 years. That's a 30 for 30 reference if you don't know what that is. Um, they do these things. Anyway, uh, they had 45 years of peace. Now, this is amazing considering what just happened in Judges 9, right? It's the sheer, Tim Keller says it this way, it's the sheer grace of God. The people have completely abandoned the Lord. They've opted to be led by a man who was not chosen by the Lord, but instead by himself, Abimelech, who was not recommended by the Lord's divine commission, but instead of his own power. Israel have sunk to the depths, and they are not even crying out repentance. And yet, God sends them Tola and Jair to be judged saviors they're not even asking for it. So when we read and we kind of go through, the, here's, here's a minor judge, here's a minor judge, let's keep going. Um, the fact that these two men were raised up by God and gave Israel some rest and some uh, <coughs> prosperity and some uh, 
25 years of, of peace is a huge deal. Again, highlighting over and over throughout the book of Judges that the Lord is a relentless pursuer. I mean, a relentless pursuer of us who are just most of the time abandoned and depraved and have no desire to want to follow him. And yet he relentlessly pursues people who are just flippant to the, to the Lord. And so we see this amazing uh, uh, God still pursuing sinners like you and I over and over, over and over. Now, when we get to chapter six, we're going to start that big judges cycle. You know, those kind of six points of Israel sins, Yahweh disciplines, Israel cries out for mercy. Yahweh eventually raises up a, a deliverer. He, that deliverer will bring a period of rest until he dies and then back up. Now, as I said, 6 through 18 is just going to get us through those first three, and then we'll go into that uh, deliverance coming and rest coming and deliver, uh, the, the rescuer's death later. But these first uh, 6 through 18, this last part of chapter 10, is only going to bring us through those first three. And I want to stop and look at those, those three things, those uh, 6 through 18, these, these points about um, repentance and what's real repentance, because I think it's going to help us today really understand uh, what the Lord wants from us. Now, Israel has been told that they're to worship God alone. They're not to worship anybody else besides the Lord. And he's told us the same thing. We're to have no other gods before him. We're to worship him alone. And so when we see here, verse 6, as soon as these judges uh, pass away and we, they start discipling, the people of Israel did uh, what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, they did it again. And no, notice this list is, and they served the Baals, the Ashertoth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of Philistines, um, which is, by the way, the list of all the gods of the foreigners that had come in. The, these people had come in, they had defeated them, and yet their gods remained. And so after the, these judges had, were raised up and brought a period of rest, as soon as those judges died, even though those people they had defeated, their idolatry remained in the people's hearts. And as soon as those judges died, even though they had beat the Moabites and the, uh, the people that served these gods, even though they had beat them, they had defeated them, they still worshipped and served their gods. It's pretty amazing that they would still, uh, every time they would defeat a nation, the nation that oppressed them and brought in their idolatry, that nation might be gone, but the oppression of their idols, the Israelites would return to those idols. Uh, meaning this, uh, when you worship an idol, at some point, it can eventually pop up and oppress you at any point. They had defeated these people, and they defeated those idols and decided to get rid of them. But then as soon as they were uh, feeling like everything was good, their, the human heart wanted to return to those idols again. And so uh, whenever you give in and worship an idol at any point in our lives, because our human hearts are so fickle, even though we worship Jesus, we can become enslaved to it again. And that's what happens to them. They are worshiping uh, gods of nations they had already defeated. And it said this, not only were they worshiping them, they weren't practicing syncretism where they were still worshiping Yahweh along with those gods. As you can see in verse, the end of verse 6, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So they just decided to let go of worshiping Yahweh completely and wholeheartedly go into these, uh, these gods. And as they did that, um, they forsook him. The, the monotheistic Israelites decided to become polytheistic idolaters 
And they excluded Yahweh in their worship. No more worshiping God at all. As a matter of fact, we don't worship him at all. We only want to worship these particular idols. Now, the key thing that we should remember from these people to us is the human heart never changes. Right? So even though these people lived 3,000 years ago uh, and we live 3,000 years later, our hearts are just like them. We can at any moment find our hearts to be drawn back to even old former sins that we might have done even before we became believers. And so uh, because of that, if we're not watching our heart, uh, our sins can be easily deceived because uh, sin it dresses itself up as quite alluring. And if we're not um, following after Christ with our whole heart, getting in the word every day, making sure that we are uh, praying every day, seeking the Lord's face, and really, um, as we're doing that, uh, wanting to give our lives as, as an offering of worship, then when we're misplacing our worship and not wholeheartedly worshiping God, our lives can be so easily fickle and we can find ourselves going after even former sins. Uh, and so um, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's, it's helpful to understand just how sin dresses itself up. Whenever I was in in college at USC, uh, not CSU, and so this isn't necessarily when I was walking with Jesus like like I should. Uh, there was we, we we decided that we wanted to uh, play some pranks. Um, children, if you're in here, these are not things you should do. So you don't even need to listen right now. Draw a picture of something. Uh, so uh, so um, anyway, we, we thought we were going to buy these water guns, and they held like eight thousand gallons of water, right? I, I know I've used this before, but it, it's just I think really perfect illustration. And so what we did is we wanted to really soak people during classes, and so uh, one of the baseball players had a really good looking girlfriend, and we put her in the front seat. Uh, and we were in this SUV with these really dark windows, and we were in the back seat. And so we would pull up to the to the street, and a guy would be walking by, and she'd you know roll down her window, and she'd say, "Hey, you know, hey, could you give me some directions?" And of course, she's like, "Hey, pretty girl, ask me for directions." And he, she would walk up, or he would walk. I mean, he would walk up, and as soon as he would get close enough, we would roll down the window and just unload water on him. Right? We just crush him with all kinds of water. Now he's all wet, and we're laughing. Ha ha ha! We see away. Uh, the whole point is this: like the the, the beauty allured him in. And brought about his demise, right? And brought about his demise. And the whole point is this. Um, sin dresses itself up the same way as beautiful. And you think everything's great. And it lures you in. And once it lures you in, you're destroyed. And it brings about your demise. Sin will always dress itself up this way. So the first thing we can see when we're talking about misplaced worship is this. Misplaced worship causes you, put up number one for me, misplaced worship causes you to be blind to the reckless sin in your life because sin dresses itself up as so alluring. And so when you see it, you're like, yes, I want that. And you go after it. And as soon as you're in it and as while you're down inside of it, you're like, oh, this is not what I thought. I thought it was going to be so great. I thought it was going to be so beautiful. But what we're doing is we're taking our worship off of Christ and instead thinking something looks so great and we go into it headlong and we find ourselves to be blind to the reckless sin in our lives, just like these people. Uh, just whenever uh, things got great, as soon as things were fine, prosperity came, they took their eyes off of Jesus and they thought, oh, these things look so great now. And so let's go worship these things. And so we have to not have periods in our life when things might be going great, where we just say, since things are so great, let me just put my life on my, my, my spiritual walk with Jesus on cruise control. Everything's good. And I can just kind of walk over here and do whatever I want. That's not how it works. We have to um, have a 
They laser light focus continually every day on worshiping Jesus. And if we don't, then we'll find ourselves misplacing our worship on reckless sin patterns in our life, which means um, you need... You need spiritual adults around you. Wherever you are in your walk with Jesus, you know, you can figure out where you are uh, from baby to toddler to, you know, child, child on up. You know where you are spiritually, but wherever you are, you need spiritual adults around you who are more mature than you that can come beside you and help you walk through appropriate uh, situations so you know what your appropriate response should be. Children in the faith don't have that. Children in the faith, uh, whenever they're walking through some sin, they think it's great. They're like, ah, party, this is great, this is so fun. But adults in the faith see it as bad. I have an example for you. This will stick with you, and this will help you see. So go ahead and put up the first picture. Um, so here it is. This is, uh, this is riding a roller coaster. So you can see there's children thinking that it's great, but Tim, uh, the adult, realizes that this is absolutely super scary. And so... I know that this situation is really bad, so I should be scared. This should bother me. While the children are like, this is great. I have one more. Can I put the other one um, Again, they're having such a great time, and Tim's about to throw up. So, the whole point is this. I, I, it's a funny illustration, but it's really the truth. Like The point is this. Children in the faith. I told Tim I was going to do it. I know he told him it was coming. But, but Children in the faith. You can go ahead and come off that, or they're just going to stare at it. So, um, children in the faith, when they're walking into things, they're like, I don't know that this is bad. This is great. But adults in the faith realize the appropriate response in these situations that dress themselves up as sinful should be, no, I should, I should not want this. I should want to get away from this. And so misplaced worship will cause you to be blind to the reckless sin in your life. But adults in the faith, they won't be blind to these things. And so uh, don't give yourself into the allurement of sin. But at the same time, have people around you that you know are more mature than you in the faith and whenever you're walking into things where you're like, I don't know what to do here, ask them. Seek their counsel. And listen, if you're walking through something right now that's just totally difficult and you're like, I don't know how I can get out of this simple thing, come to me. This, this is why the elders are here. Come to us. We want to know what's going on in your life. You, you've got to know that this is, this is our job. This is why we're here. We want to know what's happening. We want to be able to meet with you. If it takes forever, that's fine. We will, we will meet with you and talk with you and help you through these things. Please come to us. Well, um, that's the first, first thing that we can see is misplaced worship causes us to be blind to the reckless sin in our life. Now, um, you can see in verse 7 that the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel. And then it says this. It's a pretty, pretty strong word. It says, so that the Lord, since he's a jealous God, he doesn't share his glory with another. His anger is kindled against, kindled against them. And so he has a detestation against glory sharing. He, he will not share his glory with someone else. And so what he does is he sold them into the hands of, of Israel. This sold is the Lord removing his hand of protection from them. It's a, it's a really strong word. He's, he's letting now, he's, he's basically saying, I'm going to let the idols that you worship dominate and own you. That's what you want. It's a very Romans 1, uh, 23, verse 23 through 25 uh, type scenario. If you want to, you can flip with me, but perhaps you're familiar with the, the end of Romans 1. But uh, whenever it said God gives them over to their depravity. So in Romans 1, this, and this is maybe the worst thing that can happen to us. In Romans 1... It says that you can exchange the glory of God for mortal things and images 
resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature, the creature rather than the creator, who is forever blessed. Amen. So this is God saying, I'm selling you off. I'm going to let you have what you want, and they're going to dominate you, and they're going to own you. And so... Uh, because he's not going to share his glory with anybody, he actually does something really strong. It says he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. Now, uh, this is, from what I've read and, and studied, the only time that God sends Israelites into two oppressors instead of one. Normally, when we're reading it, it's they, they're sent over into the hands of an oppressor. But in th at this time, they're going to have greater oppression, and he sends them over into the hands of two oppressors, showing us just how bad their sin had come to, just how much the Lord uh, hated it. And so uh, they're serving those gods, they're worshiping those gods, and when they worship those gods, they're going to become subject to those gods. They're submitting themselves into them. To say that in a way that's more ap uh, application-oriented, uh, whenever you worship idols, you willingly make yourself uh, submitted or subject to that idol. Whenever you start worshiping it, you're just saying, whatever you want, I'm going to do it. It's, it's, it's similar to Psalm 115 when it says, basically, you become what you worship. Psalm 115 says in 4 through 8, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. In other words, these idols are created, and they have these things, and they're supposed to do something, but idols are such liars that they can't do what they're supposed to, that they look like. These idols, they have mouths but don't speak. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. Noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel. Feet but do not count. <coughs> they do not make a sound in their throat. So this idol that's been created, it says it's supposed to do this thing, but it can never deliver on its promises, ever, unlike Jesus. And then it says this, those who make them, those who make idols, uh, become like them. So whatever idol you create, you actually, and, and worship, whether it's the, the idol of money, the idol of sex, the idol of what, whatever, fame, fortune, um, whatever it is, you actually become like it, whatever idol you make. Which means the converse is great news. The converse is if we worship Jesus, then we become more like Jesus. That's great news. But as we see this in Psalm, whatever, you, uh, whatever idol you make, you become like it. If you worship an idol, you become more and more like it. So we don't want our idol become money because then we'll work more hours, neglect our family, only to make more and make more. Or we don't want our idol to become sexual morality because you become like it and you live, look more and more like the sexual morality of the nation, etc. So that's what's going on in this particular time. They're giving themselves in and it says they, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and watch what it does. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. They crushed and when, so when he sells them, it's the truth. They're going to own you. And they crush and oppress them. As a matter of fact, if you keep reading, it says, for 18 years they oppressed the people of Israel. That's a long time. Uh, when we read it from our perspective, like it happened 3,000 years, it's like a blip for them. Like they're all of a sudden they're out of it. Think about it in your own life. Think about letting a habitual sin in your life own you for 18 years. Yeah, that's a long time. That's... That's most of a major portion of your life. It's a long time. And so you just wonder, uh, how 
can they stay in that for 18 years? How blind are they where the oppression is so great they just don't eventually say, I can't live like this anymore. For 18 years they were that blind to eventually they cry out. It's, it's an amazing thing that uh, whenever you're oppressed, it, it takes a long time to finally climb out rather than immediately. And here, you're just wondering, how is it that they can do this for 18 years? Why did they wait 18 years to cry out? Um, and and in the, when they cried out, what were they truly crying out for? And so it says they were oppressed for 18 years, who were beyond the truth. <coughs> The land of the Amorites, which is Gilead. And the Amorites crossed to fight Jordan against Judah, against Benjamin, against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And here it is. So finally, they're brought to their senses. They finally wait for 18 years. They cry out for mercy here. And this cry out for mercy is different. Uh, and, and as we read, you can see how it's different. But it's different than the other cries for mercy, like from 3-9, These are different. Um, because when they cry out for mercy, the Lord can see that they're not being genuine. And it says, the people of Israel cry out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. I mean, when we first hear that, that's pretty good. We have uh, this statement of contrition that they have looks pretty good. The, the content of their, of their declaration, they confess their sin, they admit that they've forsaken God, and they actually identify the the idols. We, we worship the Baals. So it seems pretty good. We have sinned against you. We've forsaken our God. We've served the Baals. They confess their sin. They admit that they've forsaken God. And they even identify what it is. So um, we might wonder, why is it that God, why does God reject this first declaration of repentance? Because um, it seems to be a little bit out of, out of character. You could say to yourself, um, what's going on with, here, with this here? Does God do the same thing to me? Is it a 50-50 shot? If I repent that God's going to either accept it or not, that makes me nervous. It's not a 50-50 shot. Um, this is not the character of God to just be fickle and decide to repent. If you repent one day, grant it, and not the other day. He knows our hearts, and he knows what's going on. And so here, he knows what's going on. He knows what's lacking in their confession. This is the first and only time you'll see the Israelites confessing specific sin in the book of Judges when they say, we've sinned against you, we've forsaken our God, and we have served the Baals. Normally it just says they cried out. They're really specific. So again, it sounds so great. What is it that, that, that's going on? Why is it that God, who always is faithful to forgive, doesn't do here? What, what is it that they didn't do? Um, and some of us who are entrenched in sin need to know exactly what it is. Because, as we know from 1 John 1, 9, it says, um, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's true all the time. It's not 50-50. It's 100% true all the time. And so here we see, <clears throat> and the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and from the Philistines and from the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites? Now, that big list that you're seeing here in 11 and 12 those people, those nations that are listed in 11 and 12 are the lists of gods from verse 6. So those particular nations in 11 and 12 worshipped the gods of 6 and 7, or verses 6 and 7. All those people you started worshiping, haven't I saved you from them? And yet you're worshiping them again. What's going on here? Why are you doing this? And so <clears throat> we can see that where God's going uh, as, we, as we keep going. And it says, yet, now... <clears throat> This particular statement that he has 
It's a difficult text. I will admit this is a very difficult text. And he says, Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. I will save you no more. This is, <clears throat> in essence, the Lord saying, I told you that when I sold you over, that they're going to own you. And your repentance isn't real. And you're not ready to really come back to me. I'm not going to save you anymore. That's it. Which is really strong. And then... We get to verse 14, um, and some commentators say this is God being sarcastic. Uh, it, it's a really strong, uh, striking text when you read it, um, and perhaps it is sarcasm. Uh, you know, 3,000 years, 3, years ago, Hebrew, it, is it an idiom? It, it's, hard, it's hard to know, but it is very striking when he says this. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. You want them so bad, let's see if they can save you. You don't want me. I'm the one that can save you, but you don't want me. So let's see if they can do it. Obviously, they can't because they're, they're not even real. And so <clears throat> it's a striking text all of a sudden. But I think what, in essence, what God's trying to say is you need to be consistent. You need to be consistent. When things are good, you go worship your gods. But as soon as things get difficult, all of a sudden you come to me because you know I can deliver you. And so what the Lord's saying is, I want you to worship me not just when things get bad and ask me for help. I want you to worship me when times are good because you know that I've brought you to this point. So don't just come and ask me for help when things are bad. That's not real <laughs> repentance. Um, if that's the case, if you just want help, see if the bells can help you. See if they can do it. So what we see here is that the Lord wants them to be consistent. That he doesn't want them to say, um, well, we want the bells and we want uh, them as gods and we want our sin. And we don't want to just still indulge in our sin, but we don't want the bales anymore. What we want is you and no sin. And that's where he's trying to bring them to. So it's a strong way he says it, no doubt. And then you can see in verse 15, the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us to this day. Now, that's their second uh, word that they say. And it looks very similar to verse 10. So when you see in verse 10, we sinned against you because we've forsaken our God and have served the bells. And they say again in verse 16, I'm sorry, 15, <clears throat> we've sinned, do whatever seems good to you, only deliver us to this day. If you just look at the content of the two declarations, you're like, well, what's the difference? Well, there's not much difference. But what follows in verse 16, um, it's, not a, it's not actual declaration what they say, but what they do, what they do helps us see the key difference. And when we see what they do, now we understand why the Lord didn't accept their first declaration, but it does accept their second declaration. And it is in verse 16. And here it is. So they put away foreign gods. So they put away foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. So here, when we see that he puts away the, the, the foreign gods, now we see exactly what's going on. This is the only account in Judges where Israel not only cries out to God, but puts away idols. Elsewhere, they cry out to the Lord and he'll deliver them. But here, they specifically put their idols away. And now when they put their idols away, so we know that it's true, now we have a heartfelt confession, full submission to the sovereignty of God, a plea, a plea for deliverance, and then an actually forsaking of sin. We want to, the sin that we have, we're going to actually put it away, and we don't want it anymore. We don't want to give our lives over to it anymore. It looked great, but now we don't want it. So we see what real repentance is looking like. So they're moving away from half-hearted repentance. So that brings us to our second one. We're talking about notes on misplaced worship. The second one is this. Misplaced worship begets half-hearted repentance. When we 
don't place our full worship on Jesus, we have half-hearted repentance. Really what that means is when we're halfway worshiping Jesus, we're still holding on to sin. We're still holding on to something, and we don't want to let it go. I, I love you, Jesus. You're awesome, and I kind of like this. Misplaced worship begets, gives birth to half-hearted repentance. And so what we see in verse 10 is half-hearted repentance. They weren't, as verse 16 says, willing to put away the foreign gods. They wanted God, and they wanted the foreign gods. And he's like, that's not how it works. It's not me and them. Put away the idolatry, put away the sin in your life, and just me, and then you are full on worshiper, and then you're, you're being restored back to repentance. And that's why we see here in verse 16, when they put away the foreign gods from among them, and here it is, they return back to serving the Lord, which we already know that they had forsaken serving the Lord in verse 10. <clears throat> and God overflows with mercy. He is a relentless pursuer of obstinate sinners like me. Watch this. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. Whenever we let go of sinful practices completely and return fully unto the Lord, he becomes impatient over the misery of our hearts. The Lord knows. I mean, he knows when you're in sinful practices that you're miserable. It, you know how that feels. Like You're just like, I can't stand how this feels. I keep doing the things I don't want, and I'm just miserable. And like, Lord, don't you see my misery? And he's like, yes, I see it. Let go of it and, and return to me fully. He, he can't stand for his children to be in misery. He becomes impatient over the misery of you. And so let's not return to him with half-hearted repentance, but instead full repentance, where, just like they did, we confess our sin, we submit ourselves to the sovereignty of God, we, we plead for deliverance, but we also forsake our sins that have been destroying us and renew ourselves completely to Jesus. And when that happens, <clears throat> we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So true repentance, then, is confession of sin and the determined mindset of putting away idols and sin in your life and redirecting your worship away from that idol and placing your all your hope and all your love and all your affections and all your worship fully on Jesus. And listen, you, you know this. I can't probe your heart. You can know, and only you can know, with the help of your spouse, perhaps, if they know you really well, or someone really close to you, can know if you're truly doing this. But you're not going to, if you're a believer, you're not going to fool the Holy Spirit that's inside of you. You're not going to be like, yeah, I'm fully to you. And he knows, because he's in there. So whenever you repent, fully repent. Don't half-heartedly repent. True repentance is heartfelt conviction. Conviction. It's a hatred of what was done, regardless of whether it caused trouble or not. It's not, I'm sad that this caused trouble, and therefore I, I won't repent. It's whether, whether it caused trouble or not. It's not just being sorry for the consequences of your sin. It's being sorry for the sin itself, whether you had bad consequences or not. I'm sorry that I sinned against God. I'm not just sorry that bad consequences came. And they, they, they certainly will. And when we truly repent... God gives us mercy. And it doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian. He overflows, as it says. He becomes impatient over our misery. And then the Ammonites were called to arms. So as we go to this last little section, it's setting us up for chapter 11. It's setting us up for the rescuer to come along. And it says this. <clears throat> then the Ammonites who were called to arms encamped. Oh, I should, I should finish my third point. Sorry. Um, the Lord's merciful. Number three. 
the Lord is merciful to those who truly repent from the misplaced worship. As it says in verse 18, he becomes impatient over the misery of Israel. He does the same for you. He, uh, <coughs> he overflows in mercy for you whenever you truly repent to him, whenever you truly come back. And then it says this. So they're, they're setting themselves up and they're wondering then, who's the man? So as we've gone through this, you might be asking yourself, um, Fudd, you, you talked about repentance and that's good, but could you <coughs> just help me understand again the good news of the gospel so I can understand what real repentance looks like? I, I believe in Jesus, but remind me again of how beautiful he is and how wonderful he is. So, good, let's do that. Verse 17, the Ammonites were called to arms and they encamped in Gilead and the people of Israel came together and they encamped in Mizpah and the people, the leaders of Gilead said to one another, who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over the inhabitants of Gilead. They're stopping and they're saying, who is the man? Verse 11, um, chapter 11 tells us this. Um, now Jephthah the, uh, the Gilead was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. But he was, as it says, a mighty warrior, the one that's going to go fight for them. And so they're saying, who's going to be the man that's going to be the mighty warrior for us to go fight against these oppressors. Who's the man that can do this? Now, the writer introduces to us, as it's being written, that it's Jephthah. But in these moments, as we're in chapter uh, 10, verse 18, they don't know who the man is. They just know, we need a man that's a mighty warrior that can get these oppressions off of us. Now, in the story, as we're going to see next week, it's going to be Jephthah. But ultimately, <clears throat> the battle for us has been defeated. So we can be asking the same question. Who is the man that is the mighty warrior that has fought for me? Not Israelites in this particular war, but who is the man, just like they need a mighty war, who's going to go for battle and defeat this enemy for me? Um, and let's close with this. Jesus is the man who is going to be the mighty warrior that's going to fight for us. He is the truer and better Jephthah. He's not a mighty warrior because Jephthah is a mighty warrior and he's going to die and they're going to need somebody else. Jesus is not a mighty warrior that you can find in the list of the judges. Instead, he's the mighty warrior. When he fights the battle, and after he does it, there's no more battles. These warriors, when they fight a battle, they need somebody else to come fight another battle. They need somebody else to come fight a battle. They need somebody else, on and on and on. So he's not a mighty warrior. Instead, he's the mighty warrior that has fought for us, defeating the ultimate enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And he has ultimately delivered us forever. Not just delivered us for some season, not 45 years, not 30 years, not 20 years, forever. He's defeated Satan, sin, and death for us forever. He's the truer and better judge because unlike these judges who will do evil or sin or provide short seasons of peace and rest, Jesus is the judge that never does evil, ever. And he, um, because of his death on the cross, provides us ultimate peace and ultimate rest and bids us, as we've read many times in Matthew 11, to come to him, take my yoke upon you, from, and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. He invites us in to come, those who are laboring heavy laden, and he gives us rest. So who, the man, who is the man? Who's the mighty warrior? We don't have to travel back 3,000 years and have Jephthah fight for us, because 2,000 years ago, Jesus has fought the ultimate battle for us. Therefore, whenever you repent, since he died on the cross for your sin, was raised three days later, and defeated Satan's sin and death, he's our only hope then. And so when we see these practices of repentance, and we remind ourselves that 
even though we <clears throat> have these seasons of sin, Jesus has ultimately defeated all of our enemies. And so we don't have to ever stay like that. And now we don't have wrath from the Lord. He may, he may give us discipline here and there, but never wrath, never anger. He invites us always in to be come back to him completely because his son died for us. And so since his son died for us, now we have, um, we have forgiveness forever, repentance that we can always come to him. And our worship doesn't have to be misplaced on idols, but instead can be focused wholly on Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy. We thank you that as we look at this text, we realize that we uh, often have misplaced worship. That often we live our lives not having you as our king over our hearts, but instead, like the Israelites, when things get easy in our lives, <clears throat> we don't focus on Christ. We don't follow after you with our whole hearts. And many times, repentance for us can just be, I don't like how things just got bad. Help me get out of this bad situation. It's sorry for sorrow for consequences of sin and not sorrow for the sin itself. And so God, when that happens in our lives, I pray that you would help us see that and that like these people in verse 16, that they actually put the idols away, that we will, as it says in Romans 8, 13, Colossians 3, 5, put to death the deeds of the body. Put to death those things that are earthly in our lives. But we will, by the Spirit, kill the sin in our life and truly repent, truly return to you. We thank you that all of that is possible because of Christ. There's no repentance without the cross. There's no being forgiven without Jesus. And so we thank you that you paid the ultimate price for us on the cross. And now that whenever we repent, we can... We can know that we're forgiven because Jesus truly did pay it all for us. Be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper and we're reminded of this good news. That our repentance always finds forgiveness because of Jesus. Help us, uh, if we have sin in our life right now, truly repent over it. If anything was identified by the Spirit as we look at this text today in our own hearts and lives, Holy Spirit, Cause us right now to think about those things, repent of those things, let go of those things, and return to Jesus with our whole heart. If there's people in our lives that we need to go to and say we've sinned against and that we're sorry, that we'll mark those things down and we'll follow through and we'll go to them and we'll say, I've sinned against you and I ask for your forgiveness. Lord, use these next few moments, the next time in this service as we sing and take the Lord's Supper. Uh, use this time for us to have true reflection where we really do the work of repentance, really do the work of prayer, really ask the Holy Spirit to help us through these times. Every single one of us, if we're honest, have things that we need to confess and repent right now. So God, wash away any inclination towards pride to say I don't because we do and Lord uh, 
when we repent, restore in our deep affections, in our hearts, deep affections for Jesus, for making all these things possible because of the cross. We praise in Jesus' name. Amen.